Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning under an overcast and unsettled sky here in south-central British Columbia. In today's program, we continue with our series exploring the impacts of the COVID-19 scandemic. In this important episode, we will learn firsthand about the life-altering damage caused by the mRNA COVID vaccines. Today's program will feature a very interesting and informative roundtable discussion, including some mRNA vaccine-injured persons, two highly caring renowned medical doctors, a drug safety advocate, and a gentleman leading a Canadian informed consent and vaccine safety organization. Our injured persons are Mona from New Jersey, Christy and Susanna from Minnesota, and Carolina from Louisiana. Incidentally, we are supposed to be joined by Alexis from Dallas and Charlotte from the UK, but both are dealing with bad COVID infections and are too ill to join us today. Next, we have Dr. Pierre Corey, MD, and Dr. Paul Merrick, MD, both from the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, serving as Chairman and President, respectively. These two gentlemen worked tirelessly during the COVID-19 era to develop and advocate safe and effective life-saving treatments for patients in the face of tremendous personal and professional hardships, becoming world experts in the treatment of all phases of the disease in the process. Moving on, we have Kim Witzak, an accidental international drug safety advocate and the head of Woody Matters, a national public awareness campaign which puts a human face on the real-life, sometimes tragic consequences of our current flawed drug safety system. And last but not least, Ted Kuntz, president of Vaccine Choice Canada, a federally registered not-for-profit educational society dedicated to advocating for informed consent and helping families to make voluntary and health-conscious choices about vaccination. So good day, everyone. Thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you so much for your bravery about speaking out on the subject. It's an honor to be able to speak with you all, and welcome to the show. Uh, Kim, let's begin with you. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how the COVID-19 pandemic response of big pharma and our governing health agencies relate to your concept of selling sickness. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, as I've as you've mentioned, I've been an accidental drug safety advocate for almost 19 years since the sudden death of my husband due to an undisclosed side effect of antidepressants. While I thought this was just initially an issue with antidepressants, I quickly re, um, realized that it's a bigger systemic problem with our nation's drug safety system. So over the years, I've had to intimately learn to connect the dots between the insidious relationship um, between government, big pharma, the media, our regulatory agencies, and the medical societies. Um, plus, I think I also have a unique perspective um, that I've been sitting on one of the FDA's uh, advisory committees reviewing new drugs coming to market. And I've spent my entire uh, career in advertising and marketing, so I kind of understand the messaging machine. So when COVID hit, and it, all the focus turned on to Operation Warp Speed, I took pause. Um, up to this point, I hadn't done a whole lot of um, advocacy in uh, vaccine safety um, because there were other people that were doing that. However, something didn't sit right with me when these rushed um, novel technology, one-size-fits-all approach um, using a fast-tracking mechanism, emergency use authorization to come to market. You know, I look at it, and I rather than focusing on, it never made sense to me when we focused on, um, we never focused on the vulnerable or early treatment for those who might have had the virus 
or even talked um, talk about ways to keep ourselves healthy. Instead, we like talked immediately about vaccinating the world um, with this one size approach. And since when has that ever taken place in the practice of medicine? So. You know, I looked at the shortened rush to market um, clinical trials. We t quickly, after a couple months, we unblinded it. We offered all the placebo pa patients the opportunity to get the study drugs. So we lost the we lost the um, clinical market, and so then all, all of a sudden, basically, the world um, became our unbeknownst to them became the experimental, you know, th phase three clinical trial. Um, the manufacturers were given, you know, complete legal immunity. Uh, so there was no recourse if something should happen for the injured. Uh, here in the States, you know, the PR and marketing machine started with incentives like a donut for a day, a chance to win, um, you know, a chance to win a million dollars lottery to the use of celebrities and um, influencers, all saying it's, you know, while doing it on um, social media, it's completely safe and effective. There was no debate allowed, as the doctors here um, can attest to. And it was, science was settled. And if you disagreed or even challenged, you were censored. And then, of course, the mandates, you know, everybody was being forced to either get this or you can live your life or you can't live your life. And so, you know, and then at the end of the day, and probably the most important to me is there's been no investigation or interest in the um, injured, um, the reports of the, uh, the harms, the injuries, the deaths, the increase of cancers and stroke and all of that. And, you know, the system has never really been interested in harms, but let me tell you, um, there, at least back in the day, we were able to get somebody in the mainstream media. So I really, really appreciate you doing this, um, you know, putting focus on the injured, because as I say, it doesn't matter how great or small a risk is. If it happens to you, it is your 100%. So it is my, like, I know how much it takes to tell your story. And I want to just say thank you, injured, because... I will continue to speak and make sure your voice is represented in these conversations because we are not acceptable collateral damage. So thank you. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Kim. That was great. And uh, I understand that both of our doctors that are joining us today throughout this pandemic face severe challenges from both their employers and their governing bodies and able, being able to treat their patients with the COVID-19 protocols that they developed and were highly successful in saving lives with. That's a question for both of you. Have you ever witnessed such ruthless actions against caring physicians in your professional career? And have you now been vindicated? Yeah, you want to take that first? Yeah, I mean, what has happened to the practice of medicine and physicians is unprecedented. Uh, never in my career have, been, have, I, have I been told I couldn't use a particular medicine. We've never seen that kind of restrictions on our autonomy. If it's FDA approved and safe, and there's data to support its use on a risk-benefit uh, analysis, it, it's always been within the purview of the physician to make that treatment decision. And what we saw happening, um, I, I will tell you, and I'll speak for Paul, because Paul and I talk about this, but our whole perspective on medicine has been transformed because what we saw, in, in, and it, it was in conjunction with this 
you know, mass singular mass vaccination campaign is that in order to support that campaign, they really had to suppress and deny the evidence of efficacy for early treatments. And so you saw this global war carried out through largely trials in medical journals, and then henceforth media destroying hydroxychloroquine in 2020, a highly effective early treatment drug. Uh, the war on ivermectin in 2021 was waged when, you know, we, we sort of started to disseminate knowledge about that. But, you know, and then you saw that there it seemed to be no limit to the desire to restrict and punish doctors for using cheap, safe, repurposed drugs. And that I never, I never could have met. I, I, I get that there's corrupt forces, but to see the system just absolutely go along with what those forces goals were with almost no resistance. I mean, you saw the CDC uh, send out bulletins to the entire, all the state departments of health, the state department's health relayed that to every doctor and those bulletins, the one in 2020, which basically scared doctors into using, uh, from using hydroxychloroquine, they did the same thing in 2021. It had this dramatic impact where you suddenly started to see medical boards um, investigating doctors. You saw pharmacy boards scaring all the pharmacists. And, and so you saw this system just strengthen and steamroll over all the physicians and even the pharmacists. And, and they did it really with propaganda. They propagated false information about these drugs, false information saying that they didn't work or that they were dangerous. And I thought that physicians would be smart enough and outraged enough to, to really rise up, you know, en masse. But that, that was, uh, that's a bit of a fantasy. I think some of us have stood up, um, but not enough. And it's, it's been, um, it's been tragic because we all need to come together. We need to fight for what's right. And I, I would say that's what Paul and I have done. We've just simply tried to be pragmatic about this is, you know, here's a disease. Let's figure out how to treat it. We discovered a number, a number combinations of many, and many of them are actually even over the counter, things that are antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and that can treat this disease. Early treatment works. We have data from all over the world showing that any combinations of some of these early treatment compounds is highly effective at preventing death and hospitalization and much more effective than the vaccines. And so it was always wrong to have this monolithic approach uh, in what turned out to be a highly, highly toxic intervention. And um, that, that's what I've seen. But I, the, the answer to your question is that it's absolutely unprecedented. And, and it really doesn't bode well for the future if this continues. We need to put, you know, the autonomy and expertise back in that treating physician who has the patient as their primary consideration, not the pharmacy board, not the medical board, and not federal agencies. They're not in the practice of medicine. You know, science is one thing. The application of that science is the art of medicine. And, and that's what we do. And we shouldn't be restricted in our ability to do that. So just you, add, you know, uh, Michael, science is based on dialogue, discussion, exchange of ideas. Basically, what's happened now is that if you say anything which goes against the narrative, and the narrative is quite simple, safe and effective. If you say anything against their narrative, you consider a spreader of misinformation and disinformation. In fact, they take it further. You are a domestic terrorist, and they will take you out. And that's exactly what they did to my clinical career. Um, because I stood up against this medical tyranny, because I was forced or I wasn't allowed to treat patients the way I wanted to treat them at the bedside, uh, my career was ended. And they're going after us, they're going after Pierre, the ABIM on our, on, our, on our heels, 
it's relentless. And that's, that's what's happening. They are censoring science. And when you censor science, you decapitate science and science is no longer science, it's medical tyranny. And um, we've, you know, the future looks really bleak. And uh, Dr. Merrick, I mean, uh, when I had you on the program, you relayed, uh, you know, real heart-wrenching tale of, of you being refused to treat your patients and essentially having to watch them be, for lack of a more delicate term, murdered with remdesivir and the other ridiculous treatments. And uh, I mean, that's, I can only imagine the, the emotions that you felt there. And clearly neither one of the doctors that we have on today are, you know, kind of your, your small town flunky doctor. I mean, you're both highly accredited individuals that uh, amass tremendous amount of respect through your careers, uh, teaching as well along the way. And now you've been marginalized as some sort of, um, you know, quacks, which really isn't the case. And, and had uh, caring doctors like yourselves been able to lead this drive against this disease, we would have lost far fewer people and, and, and the economies of the world would have been uh, still in great shape. Yeah, so maybe just to emphasize what you said, you know, Pierre and myself, we came up with some protocols in March and April of 220. And without question of doubt, early treatment is the key to this disease. And many countries have done this, it's not just us. And if our protocols had been followed, if our protocols had been followed, we wouldn't be sitting where we are today. This pandemic would have been over and we could have saved, I don't know, 800,000 lives. So this attack on us is really an attack on humanity and has resulted in, I mean, just the excess deaths are just enormous. But the, 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 the goal from the beginning, as Bill Gates has said, their goal is a vaccine in every arm. That was what the intention was. They, they were not interested in humanity. They weren't interested in treating people. They weren't interested in controlling this pandemic. Their singular goal was to vaccinate everyone. And now they're so excited with the variants because they can keep on vaccinating you ad infinitum for financial gain. Um, it, it's a crime against humanity that we've never seen before. Yes, I agree. And, and Dr. Merrick, is that uh, Dr. Corey on your t-shirt there? This is, yes, I have him very close to my heart. This is Dr. Corey. He sits right here. Well, that's great. And I mean, certainly uh, both of you uh, definitely deserve uh, the, the, the cape and the honor that goes with it uh, through this whole process. So, I'm, you know, waiting, I'm waiting for my shirt. I ordered one of Paul last week. So, <laughs> so Michael, you know, while it is painful and while we are being tortured, you know, our only solace is we know that you, you can't hide the truth. You can't hide the truth. And we will always be on the right side of history and the right side of science and the right side of the truth. So they may go after us and take and try and take us down, but they cannot break us. And we will fight on because as Kim and the others know, that you have to fight for the truth and the science and they will always prevail. Yes, amen, amen. Ted, in your opinion, with respect to this uh, COVID mRNA vaccine, vaccine, why are patients' stories of harm being discredited or marginalized rather than being investigated and analyzed? Well, I, I wanna go back to something that Dr. Corey said a few minutes ago. He said that what's happening here is unprecedented and there's aspects of this that are certainly unprecedented. I think that the silencing of doctors and preventing them from exercising their medical judgment and saving lives is, we've never seen that before. 
But what isn't unprecedented is the silencing of those that have been vaccine injured. That's actually been a long part of the, the vaccine program. Uh, I, I, as you know, I lost a son to vaccine injury. My son was damaged, seriously damaged in 1984. And all of my efforts to uh, see whether the medical system was interested in, in, in the harm that was caused to my son and as a way of trying to make sure that no further children got harmed, there was zero interest in that. They, it, parents of vaccine injured children have been marginalized, silenced, discredited, blamed for decades. And so that part of the system hasn't worked for a long time. And, 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 and that's the part that's disturbing for me as, as the parent of a vaccine injured child is that the system does not care about the harm that's being caused by these medical products. And to me, if this was a genuine healthcare system, it was genuinely interested in producing safe and effective products, they would, they would be interested in, in, in the harm that's being caused so that they could improve uh, these products and make them safer. I would suggest to you, Michael, is that the, the reason that we're dealing with the crisis that we're dealing with is back, goes back to 1986 when vaccine manufacturers were granted legal immunity for injury and death caused by their products. And so there's no financial or legal incentive for them to produce the safest products possible. And as part of that 1986 agreement, there was supposed to be a report to Congress every two years to report on improvements to the safety of these vaccine products. And the freedom of information request that was uh, put out by Dell Bigtree's group, uh, the Informed Consent Action Network discovered about a year ago that in, in the 30 some odd years since 1986, not one single safety report was filed to Congress. So this is, this what COVID has done, what the last two years have done has, it, has exposed what I would say is the, you know, the dark side of the vaccine program. They, they're interested in a mantra, safe and effective. They're not actually interested in the science. They're not interested in the ethics. They're not interested in the health of, of children and adults. And so finally, that aspect of this industry is being exposed. Oh, excellent, thank you. And so this concept of informed consent that Ted has just mentioned is such an important a fundamental pillar of medical treatment. Let's begin with the doctors and then Ted, I'd like you to provide sort of an anchor position on that. But um, you can give us your insights. Uh, maybe we'll start with uh, Dr. Corey on why informed consent is such an important uh, pillar of medical treatment. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it stems from the, the, the basic right of, of a patient to accept or refuse a medical therapy, right? And, and in order for them, in order for them to, to truly make that decision, there's a number of elements which lead to what's called informed consent. And at its simplest okay. is that a provider, whoever's going to provide that inter, in, intervention or, or prescribe the medicine, they need an accurate knowledge of the risks of the therapy and, a, and an accurate understanding of, of the benefits of the therapy, as well as alternatives to the therapy, because it's never just a yes and no with an intervention. There's always alternative approaches, um, whether you want to pursue early treatment or you want to take your risks with just, you know, getting the viral disease. I mean, there's always options. And the problem with the informed consent in, in, in the pandemic, particularly in regards to the vaccines, is that the, it, I'm going back to the scientific censorship. The, the medical journals and media consistently and almost uniformly presented only favorable data. 
and you, you saw what was essentially propaganda. And, and again, you repeat a lie a hundred times, it becomes the truth. And so every day in every paper, at some place, you saw that phrase, safe and effective. And it just spread throughout society. And so there's very quickly, you saw informed consent essentially be destroyed by that because the impression of the average citizen is that these vaccines were good for them, they were safe and effective, and the benefits outweighed the risks. And that simply was not true. For those of us who looked at what I would call the totality of the evidence, and you really had to, to look you know, far and wide amongst various different data sources, and that actually became a scary exercise because you saw, in particular, the U.S., and I think the U.S. is particularly guilty of the censorship. You did not see what I call granular data at, at the patient level being accurately transmitted by our CDC, where you saw that in other countries. So we were able to see, for instance, the effects of vaccination, whether it was working. We saw it in a lot of the U.K. countries. You could see it in Israel. And then you started to see even some of those countries stopped sharing data on vaccination or versus unvaccinated status. But while you could get that data, you would get a very different picture for how effective these were if you looked away from what the U.S. agencies were telling you. I mean, it, it, you know, I if we want to believe that this started as what's called the noble lie, where our leaders purposely withheld data for our own good. That's what the noble lie is, right? They, they, if you want to say that they started with a noble lie, which is they just felt like everyone needed to get vaccinated, um, I already have problems with the concept of a noble lie. But I would say by the third week in January of 2021, there was enough data to stop this program. There were too many unexplained deaths, too many death reports. And the other thing that we departed from as a regulatory principle, and some of my colleagues here are talking about the safety, is, is that in a novel experimental product, anything that gets reported, any event, any death, should be assumed to be related to the product until proven otherwise, where you suddenly saw a regulatory stance be upended, where the opposite was done. Any report on anything adverse with these vaccines was automatically assumed to be not related to the vaccine until proven otherwise. And you didn't see anyone proving otherwise. You saw no autopsies. You saw no push for autopsies. And, you know, I have to come back to the simple point that I've been making through what I've had to learn this pandemic is this is unmitigated corruption uh, waged via regulatory capture of agencies. And that's been going on for a long time. The only difference now is the scope and the scale is unprecedented. Uh, but but that's what I've had to see. So going back to informed consent, without a true and open, transparent sharing of all of the data that you need to make that. Uh, that it, and again, while, while suppressing the adverse event data at the journal level, at the media level, at the agency level, they also suppress the evidence of efficacy as alternatives of early treatments. Um, and they and they totally mischaracterize the benefits. Um, if, if I have one more minute, I want to I highlight a particular piece of fraud that I think is very little known across this country, and I'd like to get it out. And it's the simple fact that in the year that I practiced ICU medicine after the vaccine, so there was a one-year period where I was in the ICU running ICUs, I only had one patient who was documented as vaccinated enter my ICU and die. And that fueled a huge narrative. All of the doctors across the country, all they could see were purportedly unvaccinated patients. I have come to find out that that has always been false. 
They have manipulated how vaccination status gets documented. Patients entering the hospital, it's very difficult to be documented as vaccinated. In the U.S. and the U.S. alone, the vast majority of people in the hospital were documented as unvaccinated. It's somewhat complicated how they did it, but I have plenty of evidence now to show that. And so you have essentially fraudulent data and a misunderstanding of the efficacy of these. And, and that's how they fooled the doctors. And then, and then you saw doctors who, and I don't blame them. I mean, they're working so hard. They're overwhelmed in hospitals. The ICUs are filling in all they see are the unvaccinated. And then you saw this societal demonization of unvaccinated. You're killing our hospitals. You're overwhelming our doctors. If only you would get vaccinated, everything would be okay. And that was built on fraudulent understanding of the efficacy of these vaccines. And, and this, again, the scale of this and the impacts of this are just... Um, it, it really does leave you speechless. And my hopes are that history has to get this right. The history books have to detail what happened here. Um, not that we learn from history always, but I, I hope we have an opportunity to learn from this one because it's exposed the rot and the corruption. And like Dr. Merrick says, the decapitation of science. I mean, there's, there's no open exchange of data. There's no honest debate anymore. Everything has a policy goal. And those policy goals are first and foremost financial. And, and so we're putting profits ahead of people, uh, again, at, at a scope and scale that I've never could have imagined, ever could have imagined. Uh, thank you, Dr. Corey. And just to touch base on this manipulation of the vax versus uh, uh, non-vaxed, was that where the, the statement was made that you're not fully vaxxed until 14 days after your second uh, injection? Is that... So that's only a small part of it. So okay. some of it is the funny business about how you document vaccinating. I'm, I'm sure that mischaracterized the effects of the vaccines, but what I'm speaking specifically of is any patient who's newly admitted to a hospital, the nurse does what's called the intake, the admission, where you take all the demographics, the history, the medicines. In many large hospital systems, in order to be, so before COVID, all vaccines, you could just show a card and it would be entered and you would be vaccinated. You just had to show a documentation of facts or card or anything. What happened with the COVID vaccines is unless you were vaccinated by a doctor employed by that system in a clinic attached to that system, and it was electronically documented at the time of the vaccine, any other form of proof, whether you could tell them the dates and you remembered, I got it May 3rd or May 21st, or you had a card, where it got documented differed. And so on the main screen of the admitted patient, they, they, almost all patients showed up as unknown. In the, in the biggest uh, electronic medical record system in the country, there was only two categories of vaccination. It was vaccinated, and then you saw dates, or unknown. There was no such thing as unvaccinated. And almost everybody I saw was unknown. And I couldn't figure this out because I saw the data from other countries where the vast majority of people filling hospitals were vaccinated. But here, everybody was unknown and it was interpreted as unvaccinated. The reality is, if you go to that nurse intake note, which is buried inside their medical record, you can find a little line which says that they're vaccinated. But that's not what got fed to the federal agencies, and that's not what the doctors saw. And so the process for documenting vaccination 
was completely altered. And you can understand why. It's very much in their interest to hide the fact that the hospitals are filling with the vaccinated. That would show that they don't work and they had to suppress that. And that's only one thing they did. I mean, if you look back to some of the other moves and I, I was getting absolutely troubled. The first thing that they did, remember when the vaccines came out and they said, we don't need to test the vaccinated? That's absolutely absurd. If you're vaccinated, and you have a COVID-like syndrome, you don't need a test because the vaccines are assumed to be perfect. I mean, th that is that is such a departure from science. And then other things that they did to further the vaccines, they denied natural immunity. They, they literally, FDA on their website, put a policy saying that that's an unvalidated approach is to check antibodies for prior exposure before vaccinated. Their goal was to vaccinate as much as possible. And the population of naturally immune would have decimated the market size of people who would receive vaccines. And so you saw these constant manipulations in order to favor and support the, the false sense of efficacy of these vaccines. It was an unending, repeated corruption. If you were paying attention and you looked, especially as a physician, when I heard that, that, you know, they wanted to vaccinate people who just recovered from COVID, that, that should have alarmed and absolutely outraged every physician. But yet, and this is where you go back to the effects of propaganda and censorship and, and the, the spreading of lies. I am sh sh shocked that so many doctors just threw the idea of natural immunity out the window and literally told everyone to get vaccinated. I had patients tell me that they just got COVID. They saw their doctor and their doctor insisted on, on giving them a vaccine. And that's absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, Dr. Merrick, anything to add to that? You know, Pierre's very eloquent. He did a he did a really wonderful job. But you know, all I can say is that they lie to us. Yep. And they lie to us about absolutely everything. They lied about masks. They lied about social distancing. They lied about lockdowns. They lied about remdesivir. They lied about natural immunity. They lied about the vaccine. They lied about everything. And they know they're lying, and we know they're lying, and we know that they know they're lying, and yet they continue to lie. They have literally lied about everything, and they continue to lie. As of this day, we know the booster or rooster or hooster, whatever, is completely ineffective against the Wuhan variant. The Wuhan variant is gone with the tooth fairy. It's gone. Yet they want you to be vaccinated against the BA4 and 5. It simply does not work. And as of yesterday, they're still recommending. I mean, are you insane? I mean, have people lost their complete sense of sanity? They're vaccinating you against the wrong virus. It's like saying, oh, we're going to vaccinate you against measles to prevent tuberculosis. It's absurd. It's a different antigen, it's a different virus, but they lie. They continue to lie, and they don't seem to be held accountable for their lies. Well, yes. one, one thing I want to add to what Paul said is a really telling example. You know, when Paul recounted all those lies, and those are easily proven that those are lies, we have all the data and science to show it, is that just this week there was a report showing that apparently many scientists and researchers are leaving the agencies. 
They do not want to be associated with a two-year period of lies leading to over a million U.S. deaths and, and a catastrophic corruption of science. They were part and parcel of it, and now they're leaving those agencies. They're doing it for their careers. They want to distance themselves from what turned out to be uh, political financial institutions. They are not institutions of public health. I mean, that's part of what they do. But what we saw here was was not about public health at all. And after two years of that, uh, it's 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 somewhat encouraging to hear that responsible scientists and researchers are concerned enough to seek employment elsewhere. They do not want to be associated with those agencies and what they did. So there's no. another lie which I forgot about was the lie of the origin of the virus. So we know that for you know almost two years, the NIH and Fauci and the WHO have considered it conspiracy theory. This came from a lab. The head of the WHO, maybe 10 days ago, Tedros himself, he himself had admitted that this virus came from the lab in Wuhan. So this was a man-created virus out of the lab in Wuhan. Uh, and the NIH and the Chinese military collaborated on developing this lab, uh, this virus. What's astonishing is that Tedros has publicly admitted this, and yet it's been completely ignored by mainstream media. Mainstream media have completely ignored the fact that this was a man-made virus. And the tragedy is, you think we would have learned, gain-of-function research continues in this country today. Today, they are still, you know, in Fort Diedrich, in, um, in Texas, in Galveston, they are still persisting with gain-of-function research. You think we would have learned our lesson. So it seems no one's accountable and people can just do what they want to do. And the NIH, really, they, they, they have their fingers in this pie. <laughs> Fauci and the NIH were sponsoring and funding the research in Wuhan. We know that. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's a shocking uh, revelation, and uh, perhaps Dr. Merrick, you can write uh, Justin Castro a letter informing him of the fact, because I think uh, here in Canada we're still uh, still touting the uh, wet market uh, origin of the of the virus. So somebody needs to address that. Uh, and and Ted, finally, before we move on to the uh, the injured persons, the this concept of informed consent it wasn't even really possible with these vaccines because we didn't have enough information. Um, I'll let you take it from there. Well, Michael, I would agree with you. I, I've suggested in some of the speeches that I've given is that no one who received the vaccine was given informed consent because there, there wasn't uh, sufficient information about safety or efficacy or necessity to, to justify the informed consent. Uh, you know, as the doctors have talked about is uh, an aspect, a critical aspect of informed consent is, is what are the alternatives? And there was never a suggestion or never uh, offered any alternatives other than the vaccine. And, and so what you begin to see is how this, this was not about health. This was not about ethical medicine. This was not about uh, you know, the, the most fundamental basics of good medicine, of good science. Uh, all of that was completely disregarded, inverted, turned upside down. And, I, and you know, we've used the word now a number of times about the lie, the, the big lie. And, I think the reason we've been so captured is we're still reeling from how big the lie is. You know, I started compiling a list of messages that turned out to be false and it was 10 then 20. Now I'm up to 30, you know, things like two weeks to flatten the curve, safe and effective. The vaccine is the only way out of the pandemic. We follow the science, get vaccinated, save grandma. Like, I mean, the, the amount of lying that has been disseminated and the failure of any uh, 
institution, regulatory agency, independent media, uh, or, 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 or mainstream media, you know, uh, college of physicians and surgeons to hold accountability to these lies uh, is, you know, it, it's unbelievable. I think I, I suggest that even those of us that are awake are still in a state of shock. Absolutely. So let's get on with the, the injured persons. Uh, perhaps let's begin with Susanna, since she sort of organized uh, everyone uh, to attend today. Let's, I would like each one of these people to provide us with a brief insight into their stories, their lives, their conditions, and the message they have to both medical establishment and society at large. Um, and so the other important one that I think we want to touch base on as well is what was your general health trajectory leaving up, leading up to the receiving the mRNA injection? And also what were your decisions or motivations, uh, to, to receive this injection? Uh, so, uh, Suzanne, if you'd like to start with that. Sure. Thank you again for allowing us to use your platform to share our stories that are being censored by regular mainstream media. I really appreciate it, Michael. You're uh, so I was a full-time employee in corporate America, ironically in the financial services industry, but ironically in corporate social responsibility, which is severely lacking here across all fronts, politically, medically, uh, pharmaceutically. But uh, I also did MS, the MS-150 bike ride, so very like long distance biking and the YWCA triathlon uh, yearly as well. So very uh, athletic and uh, was very excited to get my shot because I thought I would be saving grandma, literally. I believed that narrative and wanted to keep both my mom and my sister, who has some comorbidities, very safe. So I lined up right away uh, after my second Pfizer shot, though. I, that's when my problems began. I immediately had a bad reaction, a rash on my forehead, which I still have today, uh, and then a lymph node that was swelling up uh, really large on the left side of my neck, and then bruising, random bruising all over my body that was uh, different and new, extreme debilitating fatigue. I felt like I had done the MS-150, like biked maybe 600 miles instead of just 150 miles. Something had hit me like a ton of bricks and, and sent me down. Um, fast forward to today, I have been diagnosed with small fiber polyneuropathy some sort of autoimmune disease that they can't quite figure out. And it, you know, mirrors long COVID, but isn't long COVID. I say it's like long COVID on steroids. Uh, I ended up in a wheelchair for a while. I'm on steroids now, speaking of steroids, and that has helped uh, reduce some of the inflammation enough that I can um, mostly just walk or use a walker or a cane, but not go very far. By no means am I biking 150 miles. Um, I think that that's probably a summary of the majority of what's happened to me. I guess besides small fiber polyneuropathy, I have cryoglobulin autoimmune autoantibodies in my blood, which means my blood coagulates when it's cold. And I happen to live in Minnesota, so that doesn't serve me well for half the year. Um, but mostly I'm just really disgusted and saddened by the fact that we have no safety net uh, for people who are injured. There is no willingness to look at our injuries and research our injuries. 
We're being brushed off. We lost our First Amendment rights to freedom of speech. You can't share your story online without it getting, getting taken down. And, and then just the division in our world right now between people who are wearing masks or not wearing masks, vaccinated or unvaccinated, I really think it is about humanity pulling together and seeing each other's pain and realizing we're all humans going through this experience together and to look at each other's pain and listen a little more deeply before we shut people down. So that would be my message to the world, please know that where there is a risk, there should be a choice that shouldn't be mandated. And there is no safety net for you if this happens to you. And it might be the end of your life, frankly, rather than an injury a year and a half later. And, and Suzanne, could sorry, what? Something? So yes, yeah, unfortunately, the vaccine injured aren't taken seriously. Many of them are considered hypochondriacs or it's a stress reaction or that this is not real. So let me say that the neurological complications from these vaccines are serious, they're pervasive, they're extensive, and they are real. And, you know, Suzanne is suffering from small fiber neuropathy, so we understand why this happens. So this is due to an autoimmune phenomenon. So it's called molecular mimicry. The body makes antibodies against the spike, but at the same time, it reacts against multiple different receptors in the human being, particularly what's called G-coupled receptors. So these people get profound neurological injuries. This is real. Um, I suppose if there is some light at the end of this tunnel is that we understand it so we can try and treat it. So, you know, what we want to do, give the message is, you know, these vaccines are bad. They do terrible things. They maim and injure people. But you know what? There are things we can do to help people. And that's what our goal is. Pierre and my goal now is singularly to help those that are vaccine injured because there is hope. You know, we're not, we're not saying we can cure you, but we can relieve your symptoms. We can improve the quality of your life. There are things that we can do. And so, you know, while the rest of the medical community are ignoring these people, you know, this has become now our life's mission. We will do whatever we can to help these people. And, you know, the science is evolving and we understand this better. So it is really important for the vaccine injured to know that they're not alone, they've not been left out, and that we will do, we will do whatever we can to help them. God bless you, sir. Uh, Dr. Merrick, this pathology of this molecular mimicry, how is this happening with these vaccines? Can you share some of the science there with us? Yeah, so, you know, the curious question is, and maybe Pierre has a different answer, is with COVID, you get autoantibodies. So there's a mimicry between the spike uh, and other human antigens. What's so astonishing is why patients who've been vaccinated get hundreds of these autoantibodies. And my theory is, is that, you know, we don't know what's in the bile. And I suspect that, that the mRNA is not a consistent reproducible piece of RNA. And that what it does is it codes for various different proteins of different lengths and different quality. So because there's such heterogeneity in the protein that's made, I think you're getting this enormous spectrum of autoantibodies, which is truly astonishing because you, know, you don't need to look for these antibodies, they're there. And I think it's because we have no idea what's in these vials. We know from data from VARS that your risk of an adverse event 
is significantly linked to the lot of vaccine that you got, that certain lots have a significantly higher risk. And I think this relates to the mRNA content. Maybe they have self-replicating RNA and all the other stuff that's in the, in, in, in the vial. So I think, you know, when you get you know, when you get amoxicillin, you know exactly what you're getting. We know what the molecule looks like. When you get this vaccine, it's a secret. We don't know what's in it. And I think there's significant differences between the lots. So that's my explanation. I'm not sure if Pierre has another explanation, but clearly the molecular mimicry is a serious problem. And that's why these patients get such a vast spectrum of autoimmune disease. You know, um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, transverse myelitis, Bell's palsy, um, and then single fiber neuropathy, antibodies, you name it, they get antibodies against them. Dr. Corey, anything to add? Muted, Pierre. Sorry, I was trying to keep it quiet in my house. Um, yeah, I mean, the autoimmune is, is certainly one of the major mechanisms that we think is causing uh, such a variety and severity of symptoms. Um, but we, we believe there's others. You know, Paul, I, I have to give credit to Paul, you know, in, in our protocol for the long haul, Paul has done extensive deep dive into the medical literature, right? And again, I have to bring up problems is that the idea or the, the disease that, that I kind of, or the, I would say the body of science that needs to be created is what I'm calling spikeopathy. We need an organized um, and, and very deep research effort at understanding all of the pathologic mechanisms. When I say pathologic is those are the mechanisms which cause illness and symptoms. And we are having to find like in maybe second and third tier journals, some in vitro reports or some hypothetical theoristic mechanisms. There are no trials. There are no uh, vaccine injury clinics. And it's a disease that's being ignored, but it's a real disease with real symptoms. And our understanding of the mechanisms is rapidly evolving. Our understanding of potential treatments that could counteract those mechanisms is, is evolving. And we're certainly figuring out how to treat patients. You can treat, like Paul says, Every disease is treatable. You just have to figure out how to do it. We're just not getting any help from the system. It's systematically being ignored. You're not getting any high impact journals that are bringing this to attention. And, and the thing I have to mention is this astounding ignorance, this lack of insight into this syndrome, it shows up all the patients that I see in my practice. The first 10 minutes of every visit is them recounting me their journey through the health system. And it's nothing but doctors who either don't want to talk to them as soon as they bring up vaccine injury, that's how bad it is. You can't even talk about it. Or they simply say that this is anxiety or they blame it on sort of a somatic, a functional nerve disorder. And they're essentially abandoned by the system. They're, they're not believed, they're misdiagnosed, and they're certainly not given any therapeutic trials of medicine. And as a result, there's just incredible suffering. And it's, it's a sadness upon sadness, right? They were lied to in, in order to get vaccinated. And now they got vaccinated. They did their part. They did it with the right intentions, right? Which Suzanne just talked about. She was trying to do what she thought was the right thing. 
thing and was led to believe it was the right thing. And then look at what happens return. The, the system's not doing the right thing. It's not correcting its error. And, and go, but going back to the mechanisms, certainly autoimmunity is a part. We think that there's persistent uh, inflammation. A number of immune cells are triggered from monocytes to mast cells. And some of our therapies are directed at that. We're still trying to understand the role of anticoagulants and clotting because we're seeing uh, a number of patients uh, with either overt clotting problems or what we think are microclots. And I'm learning a little bit more about that with some, some folks. Um, we see mitochondrial dysfunction, and then we see reactivation of latent viruses. Uh, and also we see alterations to the, uh, the gut microbiome, which could persist in inflammation. So it's an extremely complex disease. And we, like Paul said, we're devoted to trying to figure out how to treat this, um, but it would be really helpful if the wider body of science, I mean, the U.S. has so much money. We have massive research institutions. I mean, this is a disease that could be figured out, but it first has to be recognized. And, and that's the problem. We're working in the shadows over here, trying to figure out a disease without any concerted effort from our federal government or the research institutions of this country. Yeah, so I just want to echo what Pia said, you know, this is very complicated disease and there are multiple mechanisms. But what people may, may find shocking is that within the spike protein, there are sequences which code for the prion protein, for mad cow disease. It is built into the spike protein. So that the, the spike protein will, will code for mad cow disease proteins. Built within the spike protein are sequences for amyloid, amyloid protein, yeah. which, which causes uh, Alzheimer's disease. It's built into the genetic sequence of the spike protein. So you must ask yourself, how were these people so evil and devious to actually want to do such a thing? It's built into the genetic code of the spike protein. So it's, you know, the spike is a very toxic protein. It does a really lot of bad stuff. And we're just beginning to, you know, uncover what it does. But this was a man-made lethal protein. It was man-made. Yes, yes. Uh, and Susanna, before we move on, I'd like to hear from you how this has all affected your life. I mean, you know, your life was on a trajectory prior to all this. Uh, you know, where is it at now? How are you feeling? And, you know, what, what is your personal outlook for the future? Uh, that is a good question. So I'm on disability leave from work right now and have been since uh, September of last year. My 14-year-old daughter and 16-year-old son have to push me around in a wheelchair if I want to go to like the mall or something to buy them something for school or whatever it is that they need. Uh, it's not... Right. I, I am trying to hang on to humanity, frankly, um, as as I see people like Dr. Corey and Dr. Merrick reaching out and trying to support the vaccine injured or or Kim, you know, and other people that frankly haven't been injured themselves. Like you're one of them, Michael, that not injured, but do care, like do see what's going on and how unjust it is and you know hope to support us and and see people see people who are suffering and try and support us like that that's what i'm hanging on to that and i i do acupuncture meditation 
Um, some of the more alternative things in addition to the steroids, um, frankly, I'm a little gun shy now about anything pharmaceutical at this point. I, I do feel like the narrative for, of safe and effective, the effective part has kind of been bust wide open since so many people know somebody who got sick with COVID after getting the vaccine. And I think, I think Dr. Corey mentioned it, but the safe part, uh, some of, some people are starting to make a change. Some of the dialogues I've had here with the Minnesota Department of Health, very different in January versus like just last week. Uh, I'm mentioning, hey, this vaccine is neither safe for everyone, nor is it effective at keeping us away from COVID. And, and they said they agreed, whereas in January, it was a of 2022 is a very different conversation. So I'm seeing more conversations, but I, it's still so hidden from mainstream media that I'm concerned for, as this is going into the arms of babies, like that part for me, you know, I, I try to share my story as quickly. I do it in the grocery store. I'm riding my little cart around and, you know, I look like a pro I look like I'm healthy. And why is this woman like driving a car? I don't want to be driving a car, but I have to use the, the, the handicap card basically to get around the target or whatever. And, and if somebody like stops, like, Oh, can I help you with that? I'm like, thank you. Here's a team humanity heart, like in the purple for humanity, the red and blue overlap. Thank you for, you know, here's my story. Just please protect your family, make the choice that's right for you. But all of that needs to happen, unfortunately, like on a one-on-one -on -one basis, because it's not getting out via mainstream media, unfortunately. But I, I do believe people care about people and care about their suffering, and we can pull together. Thank, thank you for sharing, Susanna. Um, let's move on to Carolina. Yes, can you hear me? We hear you fine, yes. All right, yeah, so thank you for the opportunity. So a little uh, about my story. I'm a 43-year-old researcher, biologist, and a mother. So I was in pretty decent, very good health before my Moderna injection. I did suffer with just seasonal allergies, but I live pretty much a normal life, active and happy life. I work full-time. I took care of my family, my farm, rescue dogs, enjoy multiple different activities. And so I decided to take my first uh, Moderna injection back in March of 2021. And, you know, as many others, I took my injection because I believe it was needed to protect myself, my family, especially that we live with my elderly in-laws and, of course, the community. And, you know, as mo most people, we thought it was safe, effective and the right thing to do. So right away after my first injection, I had an anaphylactic reaction, not at the pharmacy, but about two hours later. I had a rash, tachycardia, dizziness, shortness of breath, intense gastro pains that lasted a couple of months. And even though I had all those reactions, three months after, I was still recommended by, you know, different doctors to get my second shot, you know, safe and effective. And so I took my second shot in June of 2021. Right away, I got dizzy. And two days after the injection, I could not get out of bed. My, I couldn't feel my arm, my leg. I had, I developed a facial paralysis, migraines, my eyesight became fuzzy. I was just dizzy, confused, and pretty much I had no choice just to stay down. 
And so it has been about 16 months post my, my reaction to the injections. I still deal with daily fatigue, dizziness, uh, memory problems, nerve and joint problems, uh, pains, burning of skin, numbness, ringing of the ears, headaches, tingling sensations of my body, my face droops, my head, my right hand tremors. And so overall, these injections badly harmly my daily life, my family affected my work, my health. It took you know, it have taken away me from everything that made my life happy and fulfilling. And, you know, unfortunately, there's no easy treatments that has found, you know, I've seen numerous specialists that try different diets, supplements. I've been following the LFCC uh, protocol for many, many months. And, you know, it's a roller coaster of paths, you know, improvement and decline and flares. And so, and I've been diagnosed since the vaccine, post-vaccine dysautonomia, small fiber neuropathy, mast cell activation. So most days I cannot do most basic tasks, including driving. Uh, Dr. Corey, perhaps before you sign off, maybe you want to uh, give us your opinion on the on Carolina's situation and, and what is causing this neuropathy? Why are the nerves being damaged by the spike? What's happening there? Yeah, I mean, it's go going up again. We think molecular inflammation is another. Um, these monocytes, they seem to be uh, triggered into actually exceeding their lifespan. There, there, there are monocytes, which is an immune cell, which is kind of one of the first immune cells that attacks anything foreign. Well, when they ingest the spike protein, they seem to be stimulated and they remain in this constant state of stimulation. And that's another thing that was is causing it. And we also get to see that because so many of the symptoms, and um, I don't know if Carolina or Susanna talked about this, but they seem to be triggered by exertion, heat, and stress which are all things that can rev up the immune system as well. And so a lot of my patients, not only are they very limited and disabled, but they have to really modulate their activity. If they do too much, they pay for it with symptoms the rest of the day. And so it's even more limited than their neurological deficits. And, and, and when you hear it, like Susanna talk about burning and her skin on fire, I mean, I have patients who I had one patient who woke up two weeks after the vaccine, her whole skin of her entire body felt like it was on fire. And for days, she had nothing but rotating ice packs put on to try to find some relief. And so the, the neuropathy, these small fibers that are under the skin, when they get triggered and stimulated, you know, there's such a bizarre, I wouldn't say bizarre because they make sense to me, but I, I'm sure to other doctors, system doctors, when they hear the patients describe the sensations that they feel, they, they, it's very hard to describe some of them because some patients feel like their entire body is vibrating. They feel electric shock-like feelings. And so there's this very desert, diverse set of, of sensations and experiences that they have. But um, you know, underneath, we, we think it's the spike protein that's either um, the antibodies are then attacking the nerve sheaths or the spike protein is just causing a lot of inflammation. I also do think that there is some clotting problems that there's poor perfusion to some of these nerves. And so um, again, you, you know, what I say is as much as we know about this 
And all I know is that we're starting in the right way. Like Paul really started a scholarly investigation, looking at the spike as a pathogen and learning everything from that. I think that's a good start, but we have a long way to go. I mean, what I know about this disease and trying to treat this disease is, is, is a, a hundredth of what we're going to need to know to really come up with the most effective and pragmatic protocols. Um, but we're, we're on our way. We're trying. Paul's working every day. I'm working every day seeing patients and, and we collaborate with others. We, we talk to other clinicians. I talk to clinicians around the world. I, I work with a clinic in the UK and they have some different approaches. And so, um, you know, aside from the suffering, it's a very intellectually and sort of almost morally and ethically uh, stimulating exercise because, again, not to sound like a hero, but I, I've been constantly surprised at, at, at the things that we did. I thought people would be behind us. I thought there'd be tons of doctors to the right and the left and, and working with us. Instead, Paul and I stood out and we got condemned um, by, by the system. And, and, Hopefully they'll come around eventually and, and want to join in the fight to help all these poor patients. Yeah, thank you. Any, anything to add, Carolina, before we move on to uh, Christy? No, I think I appreciate Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick, and, you know, being here and all this opportunity of spreading our, you know, uh, awareness and make aware of other doctors that this is not all in our heads. And, you know, we, we do need a pathway and, a group of doctors coming together and, you know, joining them to spread awareness. Yeah, very good. And then Christy, let's hear from you next. We, we need you to unmute as well, please. Oops, we, we don't, we, we, uh, we have not unmuted there yet, Christy. There we go. Hi, I'm Christy Estes. I'm 67 years old. I live in Minnesota and COVID-19 has been very confusing for me. I, um, Find the whole thing, the script has changed so much. Um, before I had my vaccines, I was healthy, active. Uh, my blood and, and lab tests were just kind of unremarkable um, and no health concerns. I did my own yard work, uh, uh, did kettlebells three days a week. And so I had some good strength training. I was building up my bone mass. Um, so going into retirement years, ho hopefully healthier than even what I started. Um, but I got the vaccines last February and March. Uh, it was the right thing to do as a senior. And we were kind of in the group that we were offered the vaccines. And um, I was a little skeptical of the, of the multiple vaccines. I almost um, thought that one vaccine would, would have been a better approach, but you got what you got. So I had the vaccines. Uh, after the first vaccine, I had a splotch on my right arm. And um, that wasn't a big deal. I knew that was something that, that appeared. And about 10 days after the vaccine, I got really stiff, painful legs. And that was weird um, because it was like I, my legs really ached. And I usually ate banana, a banana every day, and I never had that problem. And so then um, I had my second vaccine. And after that vaccine, I started getting stiff. I also got the 10-day thing where my legs ached. But I got stiff. I couldn't put my, my arms over my head very easily for kettlebells. And then um, as I was getting into the bathtub, my toes turned black and blue, and that was weird. And so, you know, I just thought these things are, I didn't even tie some of them to the vaccine at the time. I just thought, what is happening to my body? Well, a, a, just a month after the second vaccine, I woke up with painful fingers and um, my, my hands were just uh, on fire. And um, I, I was diagnosed with bilateral carpal tunnel with no previous symptoms. 
And um, that was very weird. The hand surgeon that saw me said he had never encountered somebody that got overnight carpal tunnel. And it was, it was uh, the EMG uh, reported that my left hand was severe carpal tunnel, my right was moderate. So it was suggested that I get bilateral carpal tunnel surgery. But I wasn't ready to get the surgery because other things were happening in my body. I was becoming, it was becoming hard to walk, very fatigued. I met Suzanne and I met her because I had, we were at a marina and I had left the area and let other people do the cleanup because I couldn't walk. I was just kind of worthless. And so I started talking with her and we started sharing things. And um, she was, we were looking at medical journals. I was, that was my source of finding out what's happening here. And I found other people that were having these neurological problems and, and situations. Well, thanks to Susanna, I got into an emergency room at the University of Minnesota. And before that, my labs weren't showing anything that was very particularly alarming. But at that point, it showed that my um, inflammation factor had increased like in the hundreds of percent. And so I got to see the rheumatologist a month earlier. I was supposed to have to wait till September. Incidentally, rheumatologists are in short supply. So if you need one, you may be waiting up to six months for your first appointment. So when I went to see the rheumatologist, he was examining me and he said, well, if I was a betting man, I'd say you probably have rheumatoid arthritis. But as I was getting up to go downstairs for more labs, he said, I can't believe how weak you are. And so I had a, a number, a battery of, of blood tests and other, some imaging tests. And I got a call from him that evening. And he said, I, he said, this was not expected. He said, but you have um, myositis. And myositis is a very rare disease. Um, I guess uh, rheumatoid arthritis is one in 100 people. Uh, lupus is one in a thousand, except for African-Americans, it's one in 250. But supposedly myositis is a disease that strikes one in 100,000 people. So that was a diagnosis of a disease that um, you don't want to be in the myositis uh, club. It's not a very um, distinguished one for good health. In fact, some of them compare it to Lou Gehrig's disease for the decline that people undergo for what, what, what the health um, situation is for their lifetime ahead. But I started collecting information and I found out that there was a COVID-19 vaccine-related myositis in one article. I also found a chart which showed, as the good doctors here reported, um, neurological complications from COVID vaccines include brain, spinal cord, cranial nerves, peripheral nerves, and in my category, it was muscles, which includes the myositis um, category. Uh, my solution from my doctor was, first of all, he started me with, with um, a high dose prednisone, and that did help me move somewhat. I, I had um, better use of my arms and limbs. Up to that point, I had trouble walking up the slightest incline. I couldn't lift my feet up more than a couple inches off the ground to dress or, or put on pants or anything like that. Uh, and prednisone really helped. And so that was the first line was the, the prednisone drugs. And um, you can't stay on prednisone for, and the doctors knew that. He said, you can, we don't wanna be on this for a long time. So then I was tapered off prednisone and put on another drug called Salcept which is for transplant um, use. And that drug didn't really agree with me very well. And um, I went into a couple flares and I was tapering off prednisone while well, I was put back on prednisone. And then I was put on an, another drug called methotrexate, which is a, it's a chemotherapy drug. So here it is when you, when you get these rare diseases, 
you get off-label drugs that have, you know, that are, they're not they're not even studied for the for the purpose that they're given, but that's what you get. Um, and last, after my first appointment with a rheumatologist, I started looking at things that seemed to be helping myositis, and I really was interested in IVIG therapy. And I needed a couple of flares and other drugs that wouldn't work, but I completed my third round of IVIG therapy, and it has made a tremendous difference. Um, I was I had uh, two months where I was so dizzy that I had to use a cane and had trouble um, walking without feeling like I was falling. Like Susanna, at times I'm using, I, I haven't used a wheelchair yet, but I have to use a walker and a cane at times, but this IVIG has helped a lot with my balance and other issues, a lot more with energy. I still get fatigued. I Like for my lawn mowing, I, I have to do it very slowly and I can only do it after just completing the IVIG. IVIG is kind of like this for me. It's, I, I kind of feel like a vampire because I have to get it every four weeks. So as I get closer to that fourth week when I need to get my IVIG treatment, it's kind of like I'm running out of fuel. And it's kind of also like being like Cinderella with the clock strike midnight. You can, when that clock strikes midnight, you're gonna be out of options. Uh, so IVIG is, is a short-term solution. It, it makes me feel a lot better. It's an expensive therapy. I'm on Medicare, so I'm actually in a better situation than a lot of those younger people who are encountering this because right now my, March, my, my chart um, financial obligation is 105,000 and that's just with the IVIG therapy. So it's, 100, it's like $1.4 million retail cost a year for a person. So if you didn't have any insurance, that would be a big weight. And even if you have insurance, um, it's thousands of dollars that people are straddled with for this very sought after therapy. Uh, and when I, get, when I go to the uh, infusion center, I talk to the nurses, you can learn a lot from them. They're indicating that they've seen a lot of neurological and autoimmune diseases that have been cropping up since COVID hit. And they've also noticed that people that had diseases that were under control have gone into flares since COVID and the vaccines took place. And I've also um, talked to or asked questions to the Myositis Association. And I have talked to even like a prominent doctor asking them a question on their virtual uh, seminars. And I asked about this question about getting myositis after my COVID vaccine. And one of the doctors, very prominent nationally said, oh, that is very controversial. But she said, it's a very good question. And then she went on to say that they are finding that there was a 20% flare rate for those who had myositis after the vaccinations. And I'm also seeing on the vaccination or on the myositis Facebook groups that if people are asked, what caused your myositis, do you believe? There's a, the biggest grouping is the COVID vaccine. And myositis is a very rare disease, but it seems like since COVID vaccines have taken place, that it has increased a lot. And um, you know, it might not be scientific that they've determined that this is ex the exact cause, but based on these reactions from people that have suddenly been di diagnosed with myositis, it's come on and it's come on fast. The usual diagnosis for myositis takes three and a half years. And mine was, and uh, in in, because I had to wait for a rheumatologist, it was a little longer, but it was like a three and a half to four month wait. So that was a rapid, rapid um, incidents where this disease happened in my body. And 
I think that Suzanne and I probably have good immune systems. I think our immune systems really reacted fast. I think both of us are, were fit and um, active and, and engaged in, in physical things. And somehow these vaccines just kind of went berserk. Our, our bodies somehow reacted and, and mine produced something called an anti-Joe um, syndrome. And there's another journal article that I found that says COVID-19 vaccination associated anti-Joe one syndrome. So I look for proof and just um, affirmation and I'm finding it in the medical realm also, but by gosh, if this is not being brought up. We are being um, gaslit, we are being minimized. Uh, I'm, my background is communications and public relations and I'm really disappointed um, with my media um, colleagues that nobody is brave enough to uh, bring this out. I think like the medical community and the doctors who are being uh, silenced, I think the media organizations, uh, the same thing is happening. And only the media people who are independent are brave or you know have just fearless, they're the ones that are bringing this out. And I, I really am optimistic that eventually this will come out. And I, my hope is maybe this will be a congressional hearing in the next three to five years that the vaccine will injure, will be sitting in front of Congress and saying, okay, this is what happened. And um, earlier this fall, when, or earlier this spring, when they were looking at uh, uh, life on other planets and having congressional hearings on that, I thought, why not, why not bring the vaccine injured out a little earlier and put us as a priority than some of these other things that maybe aren't quite as important at the moment. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing. Um, that was that was well spoken. And of course, uh, you all have an opportunity in November to uh, turf this uh, ridiculous administration down there and make a change for the better and perhaps uh, hold uh, the perpetrators of this fraud accountable. Um, Mona, let's move on to you, if we may. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you. So, Mona, you're you're feeling unwell, and you're you're joining us uh, laying down today because your condition is such uh, that you're 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 feeling poorly. Is that correct? Correct. Um, so, I'm 42, 43 years old now. I was 42 when I was vaccinated. Um, I was a healthy uh, single mother to two kids. Um, we used to go to the mall and go. I was able to go walk long distances. I was, I was able to go bike riding with my kids. Um, we took many trips on the weekends. Um, I would consider myself a, um, an active mother. Um, I decided to get the COVID vaccine because um, my whole family is in Canada and I'm in New Jersey. And um, my dad is a dialysis patient and the dialysis clinic told him that um, when COVID happened that everybody around him had to be vaccinated or else he wasn't able to um, go to the clinic to get his dialysis. So at that point, it's been so long since I saw, uh, saw my dad. So I decided to go ahead and get my um, COVID vaccine. Um, and I, I only had one dose of Pfizer on April 24th. And um, my symptoms came um, an hour two hours after I got injected. I was in a, a, a restaurant with my family, um, my partner and my two kids. And uh, when I was in the restroom, I wasn't able to tell my brain to uh, move my legs. And that was the first symptom that I had. Um, 
that only lasted a couple of minutes and um, I was able to go home. Um, the next couple of days was like flu-like symptoms, like they said it was gonna be, but then slowly my hips started hurting me. My lower back started hurting me um, really badly. Um, my legs started getting very, very weak and I felt like um, energy was getting sucked out of my body. Um, but up to then, I wasn't thinking that it was COVID vaccine for some reason because of the fact that everybody told me that it was safe, safe and effective. And especially here in your New York and New Jersey, there's commercials running all the time on the radio saying it's safe and effective. And so... I mean, even when I went to CVS, um, they never, you know, let me sign anything telling me that I could end up in a wheelchair or these things could happen to me. And, um, you know, after that, I ended up collapsing at a local mall. Um, that day, I thought I was going to die. I thought it was going to be my last day. Um, and I've had several of those um, times and episodes in and during my injury that I feel like I'm dying. And, you know, it's taken um, steps into even um, mentally um, being okay with being injured because I am suffering so badly. And um, so- take, take your time, ma'am, take your time. So some of the symptoms that I have is seizures, twitches in my face, ticks, burning in my hands, my feet, um, internal vibrations. Sometimes I even feel my brain vibrating. Um, um, tingling, um, I, I had just, um, when this vaccine injury first happened, I wasn't, when I ended up in the hospital, I wasn't able to even lift my head. So I had a neck brace on. I ended up in a wheelchair. Um, but I was able to meet a doctor that was willing to help me um, through the vaccine injured groups. And they were able to prescribe me some ivermectin and hydro hydroxychloroquine. And when I took the um, ivermectin and hydro hydroxychloroquine, I was able to hold my head up again and walk short distances. But I am still struggling. And um, recently I had a skin biopsy through a neurologist and I was diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy as well. And um, so right now I'm in the process of waiting for IVIG to be approved through my insurance, but it's been over two months and I'm suffering really badly. And that um, even if I do take the IVIG, I don't know if that's the right medication for me because there's not enough studies being done to prove that that this could actually help me. And I've been um, learning to be okay with being chronically ill and I'm okay if I'm never the same again. But I want the doctors and everybody to help us get back to being able to at least get through our days. And so I'm hoping that the truth comes out so that we could get the help that we need. Well, th thank you for sharing, and, and, and clearly this has affected you very severely. Um, Dr. Merrick, what, what are we seeing here with this? I mean, this is obviously of our cases today, this is the most extreme. Um, any, any, any idea what's causing this level of neurological dysfunction? 
some mutant. She obviously yes. is severely disabled, and um, she, you know, she has severe neurological injuries. You know, it, it's not a good idea for 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 you know to provide medical advice in this setting. But you know, there are a number of of you know. So the sicker the patient, the more severe their symptoms, the more aggressive we are. So you know, I'm not sure who you know who is treating her. She needs to be managed by somebody who actually understands uh, the vaccine injured and the complications and how to treat them. Um, you know, the average physician, I just don't think has the uh, knowledge, the expertise uh, or understanding to actually manage someone who's, you know, severely injured like Mona. Um, so not to, not to, not to uh, push Pierre. Pierre does telemedicine. And um, it may be worthwhile, you know, doing a consult with him or, or with somebody else, because um, there are a number of options. You know, obviously, you know, I would recommend having a look at our protocol, our more, most recent protocol, which we updating all the time. Um, what is kind of characteristic of the vaccine injured and it differs from other diseases, and maybe Suzanne and Christy can pipe in is that the response is very personalized. So one intervention may work in one patient and be completely ineffective in the next. So, you know, the patient has to be their own control. You have to see what works and what doesn't work. And um, it is remarkable that, you know, that, that we have a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox, but it's very individualized. So it has to be personalized. The patient has to be their own control. It somehow has to be closely monitored. And, you know, the more severe the injury, the more aggressive you are. So, for example, you know, hyperbaric oxygen, while not inexpensive, you know, has emerged as a as an option in those that have severe neurological injuries, cognitive injuries, and in fact, there is a randomized controlled trial that was published last week, demonstrating its benefit. So, you know, obviously, we would only do hyperbaric therapy in someone who really is has severe complications. You know, IVIG is a bit of a double-edged sword and we're not, while there are some advocates, um, it can actually make it worse. And usually the response is transitory or short-lived. Um, we would generally recommend against using immunosuppressive drugs because the problem is you have immune dysfunction. The immune system's completely messed up. And what you need to do is try and help the immune system restore itself, you know, by whatever means you can to help the body help itself to reestablish the immune system. Unfortunately, immunosuppressive drugs do the opposite. So you may get some temporary benefit, but it actually prevents the immune system from recovering. The spike causes profound immune dysfunction. And what one needs to do is try and restore help the body help itself. You know, the body has enormous capacity for self-healing and we need to harness the, that ability of the, the body to help itself. One of the truly astonishing mechanisms is intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting, um, 
which has been shown to be very effective for a whole host of diseases, is probably the only way to get rid of spike protein. So, you know, patients with long COVID, patients who vaccine injured have circulating spike and the spike can circulate for, for as far as we know, up to 15 months, two years. And the only way really to get rid of that spike, which is in the cell, is to stimulate a process called autophagy, where the host actually digests the protein itself. Autophagy is like the cell's garbage truck. And autophagy puts these damaged, misfolded proteins in the garbage truck, and the host gets rid of it. The most effective way of switching on autophagy is an intermittent fasting. But interestingly enough, there are some other nutraceuticals, one of them being spermidine, which is found in wheat germ and is a readily available supplement. The other is resveratrol, which you find in grapes and, and red wine, which again, you can get as a supplement. So these are things people can do. Um, intermittent fasting is a very effective way of actually improving one's health. So there are a whole host of interventions that Mona can that are available to her. Um, you know, it's best that she's managed by somebody who understands this disease. Um, she needs to be closely followed. I would avoid getting very expensive tests because they're not gonna change what you do. So unfortunately, there are people that will exploit the situation and they will do you know, tens of thousands of tests, which really don't change what you do. So looking for autoantibodies is a pointless exercise because they're there. Why look for them? Doing multiple MRI scans is not going to change what you do. Um, we know what the MRI shows. So I think that there are a whole host of potential interventions uh, which can help um, one simple thing is called non-invasive brain stimulation. So you basically put these little electrodes uh, on either side of your head or just above your ear, and it uh, emits a low frequency current. And in fact, it's FDA approved, whatever that means, for depression, anxiety, and stress. Um, and you can buy these devices from the company. It's about $350. Uh, it's actually this form of therapy is, you know, is recognized by the mainstream rehabilitation centers and do, um, if you go to a rehab center or, or, or physical therapy center, they, 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 they can offer this. So, you know, before we didn't know what to do, we now have a number of tools in our toolkit. I think it has to be um, somewhat personalized according to what the patient's symptoms are. A patient needs to be followed by someone who understands this disease. Uh, you know, we do have a protocol, um, the iRecover vaccine injured, which we keep updating. It does have this information. Um, and, you know, I would, there are a number of practitioners who, who specialize in treating the vaccine injured. Um, the other one, obviously, is ivermectin because ivermectin has some remarkable properties. Not only does it actually bind the spike, so it helps the body get rid of the spike. It has anti-inflammatory properties. It actually also stimulates autophagy, and it actually also helps the microbiome, 
what is truly fascinating is that once you vaccinated your microbiome, so this is the bacteria in your gut change in a very unfavorable manner. So I can tell you one fascinating study, which is truly astonishing. So what they did is they took the stool from a long COVID patient, and then they, trans they did a fecal transplant into a mouse. And then they compared the fecal transplant with feces from a COVID patient and a normal patient. And when the mouse who got COVID fecal material, it started to lose its cognitive function just mm -hmm. by changing the microbiome of the mouse to match those of the COVID patient, it completely changed the mouse's ability to do cognitive functions. So manipulating your microbiome is also really important. You know, we recommend probiotics and something called kefir, which is a fermented yogurt. So it's, you know, it's a very complex disease, as we said. There are lots of different things that you can do. You know, many of them are, are somewhat simple. The hyperbaric oxygen, though, is pretty resource intensive and it is somewhat expensive, but, you know, it's been life-saving for some patients. So, you know, it's very difficult just off the bat to say what, what would help Mona. I think she needs a personalized consult uh, with someone who really understands the disease. Thank you. And, and so, you, uh, Dr. Merrick, you've covered some of the iRecover protocols uh, that the FL Triple C has developed. Uh, are there any other aspects of that uh, protocol that are worth highlighting? Um, so, you know, this idea of intermittent fasting, which we kind of stumbled on, is a truly fascinating concept. And most people don't know much about autophagy. And so, it's the only way really, you know, we know studies show that the spike persists in the cell and why it does that is a very curious thing, partly because what spike does is it switches off autophagy. So spike switches off the host's ability to get rid of itself. So you really need to try and switch on the host's immune system to get rid of spike. And stimulating autophagy is probably one of the most uh, efficient ways of, of doing this. Um, so, you know, then obviously there, there's, there's something called uh, low-dose naltrexone, which, which many patients with multiple neurological uh, symptoms tend to benefit from. So that's like our third or fourth line therapy. Um, so, you know, we go down, we have a list in terms of priority and the impact it has so, um, you know, I, I would suggest to Mona to down, download the list. You know, if she has some questions, I would be happy to answer. But I think, you know, she obviously has significant injury and she needs to be followed by someone who, who understands the disease. Unfortunately, you know, most physicians, for reasons that are not clear, you know, do not understand vaccine injured and how to treat these these patients so at this point dr merrick should anyone continue to participate in this grand medical experiment uh, should should people be going in for their boosters etc so i can think of not a single patient who would actually benefit i think there's no indication so you know maybe at the beginning when this started you could have made the argument that the elderly and those with comorbidities were at highest risk. 
Now, I think one can definitively say there is not a single human being on this planet who would actually benefit from being vaccinated or boosted. Not a single person. So it, sh it must stop. I mean, these, the, 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 we know that this vaccine is ineffective. It has horrendous side effects. And the, the, the actual notion you would vaccinate children as lower, less than six months of age it is, is a crime. I, I don't think it, there's anything else to describe it. So no, no one should be vaccinated. There's absolutely no reason to be vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, so there's another uh, letter request then to uh, uh, the, the, our premier or prime minister, rather Castro, uh, his health minister, who's actually an economist, has just stated here in Canada that uh, we'll be requiring a booster every nine months uh, to participate in society. So, I mean, given, given your expert opinion, I mean, and the evidence that we've seen at large and as well today, I mean, this is uh, a situation which can only get worse if this uh, administration of this toxic substance continues. Yeah, so I think these people that are advocating for these vaccines should speak to people like Mona and Christy and Carolina and Susanna so that they realize this is real. These are real people whose lives are being destroyed. These lives are being destroyed. You know, we know Celine Dion, her career is destroyed from the vaccine. You know, she's a Canadian. I'm not sure why she's not speaking out. I think Justin Bieber also is Canadian, isn't he? He yes. needs to speak out because he, he got Ramsey Hunt and his wife had a stroke from the vaccine. So, you know, it doesn't spare anybody. And, you know, this, the, you know, one just needs to look at our guests on today and to realize this, the, you know, we, we're not talking about minor side effects for the sore arm and malaise and fever. We're talking about serious injuries that are life-threatening. And, um, you know, once, once you interact with, with, with a patient that's been vaccine injured, you know, it changes you. You understand the, the impact that these vaccines are having, especially since we now know they're completely ineffective. Um, so why are they persisting with this? You know, it's a crime. It's nothing more than a crime. Yeah, I agree. Ted, anything to add on that uh, point? Well, you know, there, there was sufficient evidence. I mean, first of all, this should never have been allowed to be uh, authorized in the first place using the emergency use authorization. That There wasn't sufficient justification, uh, medical evidence to support either its safety or efficacy. But uh, it's been suggested to me that by, by February uh, uh, of 2020, there was enough information that this experiment should have been stopped. And you know, you, you could be forgiven for saying in the beginning, you know, we are up against something that the narrative was so uh, severe uh, in terms of, you know, the potential outcome that we were, I think, desperate for answers uh, or uh, possibilities. But today there is no justification for continuing with this experiment. And, and the word crime it, to me isn't even strong enough. What we're witnessing is systemic murder of, of citizens globally. And, and to watch the approval of this uh, experimental genetic technology for our infants is uh, beyond comprehension. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that's the part that I'm so still uh, in a state of disbelief is that there are so many participating in this harm against humanity. And, and there, the evidence is so abundantly clear that, you know, where I, 
this is an anti-human agenda, as far as I can tell. And and greed doesn't explain it. Uh, it, it it's it's more it's darker than that. Um, and then one of the most egregious violations is that when you hear the stories like we've heard today, and and the media will then call these people anti-vax. And I've heard that for 35 years of my life is that when you raise you you vaccinate your child or you vaccinate yourself and then when you talk about the harm you're, you're accused of being anti-vax you know i pleaded with our mainstream media when i've been interviewed many times is please refer to us as parents of vaccine injured children or vaccine risk aware parents and they refuse to acknowledge that the, the vaccines cause harm and so they participate in this egregious violation of humanity there are so many people that are guilty here. I think that's the part that is overwhelming. You know, it's, and, and it's right down to the most uh, local level we're, we're seeing this kind of uh, violation against humanity. Yeah, well said, Ted. And I'll throw this out to everyone here. Is anyone aware of anything being done to hold the decision makers and the policymakers accountable for this utter lack of oversight and the shameful outcome? Well, I can say that in, in, in my organization, which is Vaccine Choice Canada, is involved in legal challenges against not only the governments that are involved in this, but the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the, the law society, the, the mainstream media. Like we recognize that all of these are complicit in these crimes against humanity. And, you know, what uh, Rocco Gladi says is that the, the law is on our side and the evidence is on our side. What we don't have is we don't have the ability to control the psychology of the masses because they've been so manipulated and deceived by our mainstream media and our governments. And as we talked about before, because the lie is so big, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that it has pervaded the entire globe, this, this deception. Um, yeah, I mean, Ted is right. I mean, it, it's such a, all the agencies are involved. It, it's, it's just so pervasive. But, you know, what's interesting is there was a judge in Uruguay, I think, who actually passed a ruling that to, to, to halt vaccination of children until Pfizer could actually provide them with data showing it's safe and effective. So at least, you know, there is a glimmer of hope um, it's too small and it's too, it's not bright enough, but hopefully that sentiment will spread because, you know, we need people to, to wake up. I think obviously the UK is suffering a big politic, political crisis. And I think part of it may be due to vac the vaccine and the vaccine mandate. So, you know, I think it, things will change. The damn wall is cracking. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the, the stakeholders in the U.S., I don't think will, and probably Canada, will ever admit they've made a mistake. They're so entrenched um, and that they, they, they're just going to continue to perpetuate this lie. I feel and, like and we as a vaccine injured are, are trying desperately, despite the fact that, you know, we feel terrible and it takes a lot of energy just to get out of bed in the morning. But we're trying desperately to be heard and to continue to be heard. I don't know how many times I've sat in front of a politician on both sides of the fence, telling my story, bringing other vaccine injured with me, trying to unite the people in Minnesota so that when we're going in front of 
like Congresswoman Betty McCollum, it's not just Susanna and Susanna's story, it's Susanna along with five other injured that I happen to have met, knowing that there are hundreds more constituents that are injured. So continuing the fight, despite the fact that our bodies don't really let us do that very well, and then working together with other people who are, are sympathetic to our situation to, to come together and, and, and be heard, essentially. I'm on the board of react19.org as well. And um, we're a board made completely of, up of vaccine-injured people. Um, who do have support networks behind us, that being maybe a savings account, health insurance, um, and, and a supportive family or network so that we have people supporting us so that we can speak out and try and share our story, trying to protect other people from having this happen to them. So I won't stop until I'm in the ground at this point. And I know that's true of, of everybody here, you know, who's suffering, but yet here pulling ourselves forward to share our stories. And I, and I know there are many, many more too. And I was just gonna say, um, well, first of all, I have to say thank you to the injured because it was heartbreaking listening because having seen and been involved with this uh, for 19 years, this, the one, I guess, bright side of COVID is that I feel like it's shining the light on something that has been going on for a very, very long time. It has always been the people, and you know, I feel like a lot of these injuries have been one-offs, meaning it happened here, one happened over here, and it wasn't, an, it wasn't a big collection of injuries or like with the antidepressants and suicides. If that, I mean, that, if they knew about it in 91, did nothing. It took 13 years and how and approving it for kids before warnings ever got put on it. And to this day, they still don't own up the mistakes that were made. And so I always say, if all if you took all of the injuries and all of the deaths over properly prescribed, as well as things that we have bought into the safe and effective messaging, and if it was a plane crash, if it was like the 9-11, if it was all of us at one time, people like people would be coming together and demand. But for so long, they've been able to say, oh, it's well, that's your body. And then if it doesn't work, it's like, oh, well, you know that. I mean, it's always blaming the the person, meaning the people who have um, and, and even, you know, I've seen doctors being manipulated by the system. So I think, you know, we saw it in housing or in the house market, housing market. We've seen it in the banks where we thought it was too big to, you know, like too big to fail. I think this might be, um, and I'm going to hold the hope that this is the opportunity to shine the light of what's been going on for a long time because safe and effective has been hijacked. It is a marketing, it's marketing. It's, um, it's been, if people truly understood all that goes into like getting drugs approved and fast tracking to, you know, ghostwriting and the manipulation of clinical studies and how medical journals and all of that really understood it. A more realistic phrase might be, and a more um, buyer beware. And, um, and it gives, and it puts back some of that, you know, for even for uh, all of us to actually ask the questions and take pause and, you know, um, I mean, I, I go back to the beginning, you know, a lot of the drug safety efforts, we've always said, 
especially when we're using new drugs that are coming on market. And most of the drugs that are coming before my um, uh, psychopharmalogic, so it's the psych drugs, most of them are using some kind of fast tracking mechanism. So the people in the drug safety world will say, hey, no marketing, be very careful about any new product when it first comes on to, you know, for two years. And that's not what happened here. So um, I do believe that there is hope and, um, and my heart um, literally goes out to you people that, um, that keep telling your story. Because I know it's not easy, and especially when you are the ones that every day live with the, like, you aren't able to get up and you're doing it anyways. And I'm going to say, keep speaking your story. And we need more people like Dr. Merrick and Corey and Ted and, and, and you, Michael, given people the platform to be able to have these kind of conversations that are so needed in our medical and our healthcare because it has real life consequences. So. Thank you, Kim. Any, any further thoughts there from anyone? Well, so, you know, yeah, I just think we need to unite together and work together. And, you know, the vaccine engines, you know, they're not alone. They need to unite together. React 19 is a really good group. And I think, you know, there's, there's power in numbers because unfortunately, unfortunately, the number of vaccine injured in this country is maybe 10 million. I mean, and that's not an underestimate. Um, you know, we're looking at ginormous numbers of vaccine injured people. Uh, this is going to be a humanitarian catastrophe for years to come just because of the number of vaccine injured. So I think we need to unite together and work together to, you know, defeat this evil enemy. Thank you, Dr. Merrick. Ted? Well, I, I just want to underscore what Dr. Paul has just said, is that I think this is an opportunity for us to actually come together. And, and by recognizing that vaccines do cause injury and build some unity there between uh, the community, this has to stop. Um, and so we're doing some things like we've launched a campaign called Justice for the Vaccinated. And, and it, it's recognizing that the people that took these injections did so because they thought it was the right thing. They were told it was the right thing. They were told it was safe and effective. They've been massively deceived. Uh, we're holding things like candlelight vigils and we're inviting people to come in and, and acknowledge those that have been harmed by the vaccines, but also by the mandates because many lives have been dramatically transformed because of those restrictions, loss of income, loss of businesses, loss of being able to say goodbye to an elderly parent because uh, you weren't allowed in, in, into, into hospitals uh, if you weren't fully vaccinated. Um, you know, this, we need to, to use this as an opportunity to expose the harms in this industry so that it doesn't continue. I think we need to outlaw that phrase safe and effective. It's not a true statement. And we, we need to recognize that it, it, where there's risk, there must be choice. And that we need to go back to those fundamentals of bodily sovereignty, the right to inform consent, and the right of parents to make medical decisions for their children. Thank you, Ted. Well, so thanks everyone for your time today. We, we, we've covered a lot of ground. There, there's still some more ground to cover here. Um, I do appreciate everyone's time and everyone's stories. Uh, I think this has really highlighted 
the extent and the pervasive damage that these uh, vaccines have caused. Um, so let, let's look to, to continue with our discussion at a later date. But for now, uh, listeners that would like to learn more about the various guests and, and their organizations, uh, Ted, since you're on the hot mic there, let's start with you. Where can listeners learn more about you and, and your organization? Well, I'm with Vaccine Choice Canada, so vaccinechoicecanada.com. Uh, we work hard to capture the, the stories of those that have been harmed by these injections, stay current with the, the emerging science as it comes forward, and also participating in these legal challenges. So come to our website, subscribe to our uh, weekly newsletter, um, and, and uh, you know, we're, we, we, we've been in this a long time. This is our 40th year of trying to protect the rights of individuals to make uh, informed consent choices. And so uh, unfortunately, this is not a new battle, it's an old battle. Thank you, Ted. And uh, Dr. Merrick? So yeah, so Pierre and myself are co-founders of the FLCCC, Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance. Um, you can uh, see us at flccc.net. Uh, you know, we, we're not selling anything. We have no products. We don't see patients. We're basically providing information, information to empower patients and physicians with true scientific information. So we do have a protocols across the board for the prevention, the early treatment, the hospital treatment, the treatment of long COVID, and now the treatment of the vaccine injured. So I would suggest that people go to our website. We also have a weekly webinar every Wednesday night at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, we cover some uh, important topics. We have some guests and people can um, subscribe to, um, to receive notification and emails about the upcoming webinars. Um, so thank you. Excellent. And thank you for all your work, sir. Uh, your, your work and your sacrifices are much appreciated. Uh, and Susanna, your, is there a website for people to uh, check out uh, React 19? Yep, it is react19.org. And we have their um, patient resources providers that can sign up to collaborate with us. And then also when we get more donations, we do have a financial care fund um, that provides up to $10,000 for people to use that are vaccine injured for treatments. Um, unfortunately, we're, we've kind of given out most of that money and we need to do more fundraising or get some corporate sponsorships in order to start the program up again, but we have been able to help a number of people so far. Excellent, excellent. And, and is that react with the numeral 19 or is 19 spelled out? It's a numeral, so react19.org. Okay. And Kim, last but not least, your, uh, your, your, your information? Sure. Um, you can check out woodymatters.com, which is the organization, the drug safety organization that represents the voice of families. In a lot of these conversations, I, have a, I do a lot of work in front of other FDA, um, not just vaccine, um, as well as kimwitzak.com. I'm on Twitter. I have not gotten kicked off yet. Um, and then I'm also in the process of developing a docu-series that's going to be um, selling sickness. And it's all about the issues, um, the various drugs, the history, basically the insidious um, spider web that is um, that we've gotten tangled into. 
Outstanding. Thank you. Well, once again, everyone, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing your stories and your expertise and, and your passion. Um, as we've mentioned today, the really the way through this is working together and uh, harnessing our collective strengths and energy, uh, supporting one another, and uh, ultimately holding those accountable who have uh, perpetrated this fraud and, and uh, this, this pandemic uh, upon us all. So let's wrap up for today, and uh, we'll hope to see you all soon again in the future, and God bless you all, and, and uh, may uh, better times be ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.